This is James Eklund, and you lucky and gorgeous people are listening to the Water Values Podcast. Well, thanks for the avant-garde introduction, James, and get ready for more avant-garde introductions from James, who offered up several intro renditions recently, Uh, so you will have the listening pleasure in the future of hearing James and uh, his unique delivery of these intros. But in the meantime, the Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations, by Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference, by Trinix, Trust in What's Next. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By Woodard and Curran, high quality consulting, engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. And by the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. This is session 232. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Well, we have a fantastic show for you today. We have Parker Cohn, aka the Soil Surgeon. And Parker has, is going to provide a very interesting discussion about soil health and its impact on water usage. Parker does a great job, and I promise you're going to learn a thing, two, or even five. As you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show, Black & Veatch, Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, and the American Waterworks Association. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. Thank you all, and I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That simple note of thanks will go a long way And I'm sure you'd be surprised if you knew how long it would go. So thank you so much for doing so. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on would be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Yes, the ever important subscription. Thank you. Well, now it's time for the main event, the interview with Parker Cohn. So let's get that water flowing. Parker, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? Thank you, David. I'm doing great. It's a it's a sunshiny day in Southern California. <laughs> well, don't say that. It's not so sunshiny here in Southern Indiana. Uh, <laughs> school got canceled today, icy roads. So uh, uh, if you hear any background noise, it is probably my daughter. Um so with, with that, uh, Parker, for those who may not be familiar with your work, can you give us a little thumbnail on your background and how you got into the uh, water space? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up, I grew up in, in Boise, Idaho, where we didn't really have, you know, grew up under drought conditions, but didn't really have an idea of what a drought really looked like. Moved to college in 
down to University of San Diego uh, in 2010, went to uh, studied mechanical engineering there and developed a passion for, for water and water innovation. So graduated with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. I had to take kind of a victory lap a fifth year um, <laughs> and in school, which, you know, not, not the worst thing that could happen, but I, I got to get involved with some, some entrepreneurship classes, got some prereqs waived and got to participate in a, uh, a pretty cool uh, innovation challenge for entrepreneurs. So I, I took my senior design project, which was a water purification system designed for off-grid uses that desalinated and sterilized water that was brackish and make it drinking water. Uh, took that, wrapped it up in a pitch, pitched it in this, in this competition. And I learned so much about, about water, the drought, um, you know, water quality around, around the world, how, how water is the leading cause, one of the leading cause of causes of death in, in the world. And that's really, really tragic and wanted to, that's where I really planted the seed to do something about, about water in, in my lifetime with my career. And so coming out of college, um, I, I worked for a startup, um, downtown San Diego for a couple of years, really honed my skills as as an entrepreneur and working in a startup environment got a lot of gained a lot of skills made a lot of connections and a couple of years later pursued uh, left there pursued my passion in in water climate innovation food production all focused around soil so did some trials in college with with biological soil management essentially designing probiotics for the soil to improve plant health and reduce water use, um, ways we reduce water use, improving infiltration rate, reducing runoff, which reduces evaporation as well, just makes the system more efficient and ran a few pilot projects with the city of Tucson, saved them you know, over half a million dollars in water back in 2013. And that's just simply with soil science. So that really bred a passion for for water, soil, agriculture, um, and some of our biggest commercial water users being agriculture in, in the United States. Okay, so we're going to get into soil and ag and things like that in just a moment. But you are the second guest I've had just in the last couple of guests that was a, you know has a degree in mechanical engineering. And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on why mechanical engineering led you to a water uh, water career because uh, it, it, it that I just wouldn't have expected a mechanical engineer to become a, uh, a someone involved in the water sector or even soil right that's yeah, even, or even more soil. vague yeah there we <laughs> it's go it's even more vague so so great question you know what piqued my interest in mechanical engineering was my father put the U.S. News World Report they had the top five degrees. Uh, they used to have a magazine every spring that came out. He put it on my desk every year in high school. And mechanical engineering was always in the top five because it had so many applications. There were like 250 different careers you could go down, go down with a mechanical engineering degree. So I feel like mechanical engineering is really broad and it's more of a way of thinking. And engineering in general is more of a way to how to attack a problem. So one of the biggest impacts and and of the training of becoming a mechanical engineer is really figuring out how to approach a problem, figuring out 
what the what you can control and what you can't control your independence and your dependent variables figure out you know ways to um ways to manipulate systems whether it's you know oscillating springs and damper and vibrations or you know very obscure finite element analysis and stuff like that you can really figure out where the where the weak points in a design or a process are and improve them to reach your desired goal so like mechanical engineering was a great was a great foundation um in undergrad oh well there you have it all right so let's get into uh, uh soils and ag and things like that so first talk to me about or first first let me know what the current state of of ag is and from a soil perspective like i i know a couple of years ago i had uh, uh a gentleman on who did no-till farming uh, from Oklahoma and he, he talked a lot about soil management and things like that. So kind of what's your take on the health of our soils? The health of our soils, pretty, pretty dismal. If you, if you start, if you dive into the, if you dive, dive into the, some of the trends that we're seeing, uh, just this, this last week, pretty much, pretty much everyone I know in the Palm Palm Springs desert area of Southern California like had some sort of cough or, or respiratory issue just because of all the particulate matter that's in the air. So we see, we see our soils eroding and, and blowing away mainly because of the way that we manage them. So a lack of cover cropping, leaving fields bare or fallow, uh, intensive physical management, ripping, plowing, disking, disking the soil uh, causes more more soil erosion and just so we physically manage our soil by driving a knife through it and then we we come through with with a handful of you know chemicals herbicides pesticides synthetic fertilizers that the soil really wasn't wasn't designed wasn't designed for these are these are all these practices harm our our soil and make it more susceptible to erosion through the wind like we experienced last week or, you know, runoff and we see nutrients, nutrient mobility moving and we don't really want nutrients to run off into our, into our, into our groundwater, you know, through, through percolation through the soil or, you know, running off, running off fields. But, you know, we've reached some, we reached a point where the way that we've managed our agricultural land is really affecting our water supplies. Like in the, in the groundwater in central Valley, there's some of my friends have farms with, with stone fruit, you know, think like plums, they've got pomegranates, they've got citrus, and they actually have to filter the nitrates out of the water before they irrigate the fields with it because the groundwater is, is would be toxic with the level of nitrogen that's in it. Okay. So what's the solution, um, to, you know, what, 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 how do you propose remedying the, uh, the problems with the soil health? So I'm all, I'm all for no-till. I'm all for regenerative agriculture and practices. I think it's a big ask when you go to, when you go to talk to, some of the largest producers, the largest, the largest farmers in, in the country. And you, you tried, you proposed this regenerative model where 
it's it's just it's too much of a leap it's too much of a leap for them i think the most effective way to address the problems that we've created in our agriculture system is is step by step and bite-sized chunks that we can handle so uh, so starting to consider soil biology in your management decisions so we're starting to see more cover crops being planted in almond orchards and pistachio orchards and stuff. That's great. That's phenomenal. It's a, it's a step in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're, we're starting to see more emphasis on carbon-based fertility, you know, in, in agriculture. And we're seeing more pressure from, from the consumer on the consumer side to have, to have more, uh, you know, pressing for more organic, more sustainable, sustainable practices, which, which I think, which I think helps the the biggest, I think the coming from my side is there's, there's a lot of theories. Like we could, we could go completely regenerative. We can go, um, we, we can do, we can on, on paper, we can do it at small scale. So why can't we just flip a switch and do it at large scale? I think that's one of the things that, that, I've really focused on is designing a solution that, that is scalable, that can go from a, you know, a small organic farm all the way up to, you know, 180 acre, 220 acre pivots, fallow flood irrigation, where we, you know, incubate soil essential microbiology and put together a biological soil management practice and package that we can, we can inject into the irrigation system and just put out with the water. It's a lot, it's a lot easier when you break it down into bite-sized, bite-sized chunks. And so that's kind of, I think, I think the way, the way in with the way to move the needle is, is to, is, is step by step and, and bite by bite, you know, the way, how do you eat an elephant, right? One, one bite at a time. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, what about yields? Because we've all seen in the, in the grocery store that, that prices are going up and things like that. So the, I think the anti argument that you would run into is that, well, if you, if you go that way, yields are going to go down and then people are going to starve. There's not going to be enough food. It's going to, I mean, what's the, what's the response to that? So, so I'm going to, I'm going to use an example from this last year to, to kind of demonstrate my point here is when we, when we start, using more regenerative practices, we're not throwing away things like precision planting, right? We're, we're like using GPS planners to maximize crop spacing and utilizing all the technology we've developed up until this point, right? We're, 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 we're adding, we're adding additive technology that collectively improves crop production. So worked with a tomato farm this summer, a handful of control fields in different regions of California. You know, they spent $300 an acre on our biological management program. And what we ended up doing with that side by side, we produced 2,800 to 2,850 pounds per acre more tomatoes on these fields. Okay. So, so let me get this straight. So, so traditional farming, lower yield, regenerative farming increased yield how long did that take so this was just this was just our first this was just the first round of pilots with a with a with a large tomato packer 
that we started working with. So it's in a season, right? So, so those yield increases, they're adopting a more sustainable regenerative practice. Now they're not, they're not a hundred percent, right? On this, there's a spectrum here. You know, we're, this is, this is one step in the right direction, but what they're finding is, and what, what I'm able to, to demonstrate to them is you adopt this, this more sustainable, holistic farming practice, and you're going to produce higher, not just more, not just more yield, but more nutrient dense produce. Mm -hmm. So we took, we took petiole samples. They take petiole samples, which is just, you go in, you, you snip the, like the meristem of, of the, the plant, you take some tissue samples, send it to a lab. And that's where they determine what fertilizer they put out the next week. And it's only a 60 day crop. So, so when we say, you know, we increase their yield by almost 3000 pounds per acre, that's a 60 day crop from the time they plant it to the time they harvest it. And when you increase the yield by that much, you know, we're only looking at the net difference, but that's about $1,200 per acre return. So they're making 4X on adopting regenerative, sustainable, more sustainable practices, right? It's a step in the right direction. It's just a way to get their foot wet, just a way to get their feet wet and, and adopt something that, that can easily plug and play into their current operation. Okay, so the, the yield increases on a per acre basis. What about a, on a cost basis? Yeah, so on a cost basis, when we when we break it down and we look at we look at what we spent versus what we made, we only we isolated one thing, right? And this is where the mechanical engineering really comes comes in and I think is beneficial is all the tests that we did in the labs and all the reports that we had to do and the projects we had to do to graduate really kind of prepared for field testing at large, right? We're we're isolating a variable. We're we're running a PRM program on on half of these fields in different regions and we're keeping everything else the same and we're quantifying what the difference is, what the improvement is from a yield perspective, from a quality perspective and at the end of the day it has to make econo economic sense. So so the return that we were able to give th to give these folks was was for 4x in in 60 days. So yeah. you give me 10 $10 today and in 2 months I give you give you 40. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like I'm burying the lead a little bit. Uh, how does all, how does all this relate to water? Um, you know, from, a, from, I'd like just like your perspective on soil health, water and water use and regenerative practices. Yeah. Thank you for reeling it back in. So, so the reason I got so passionate about soil is really the, the capacity for us to save water and be more efficient with our water usage. So when we increase, think of, think of dead soil, think of super compacted, hard soil. It rains or, or you run, run water on it. it the, the water just runs off. It doesn't percolate through because it's so hard. It's more like concrete than it is actual soil. So that's, there's a, there's a biological deficiency in, in compacted soil that causes the water to run off. The, the soil is so dense, the water runs off, right? Extreme case. Now, now when we look at more of a realistic crop production, whether it's, you know, think of it as like think the tomatoes or row crops or corn or even turf on a golf course is 
when when we have healthy soil, there's the soil or the water percolates more efficiently through the profile and there's more plant available water in the soil. So with healthy soil, right, we we implement things like cover cropping, things like my program, things like cycling, uh, cycling your crops and and you you're able to build build soil health via you know improving improving carbon you get more root root zones to help roots help break break up the soil create paths create paths for water and promote more carbon cycling now we have a healthier soil profile that has these improved physical characteristics right so soil biology affects the physical soil structure and also the chemical nutrient availability for the plants. And so as, as we, as we manage our soils more effectively, we're using water more effectively. Water's going into the soil. It's not, it's not running off. It's not pooling, uh, you know, soil that doesn't drain. It's not, it's not pooling on the surface. It's, it's infiltrating into the soil, getting down to where the plants can use it. And as we improve the soil through this process, we're actually able to change and adapt our irrigation strategies and the way we water our plants. So we can water deeper and less frequently in order to lose less water to run off in evaporation, yeah. which is, which is a huge, so I don't, I don't know if thatch, I like to use this this golf course analogy and I know golf, a lot of people look at golf as a, it's a big water user and, and it can be, you know, you see these emerald green golf courses in the middle of the desert. But one of the things we've been able to do on golf courses is instead of watering the whole golf course every night, we water, you know, as we build soil health, we only water one third of the golf course a night. So, so there's, there's, and a lot of people have home yards and stuff, the thatch at the top, at the top of the, on the top of the soil, that's kind of that organic mass of, uh, you know, living and dead plant material at the top. Think of that as a sponge. And so when you irrigate a whole golf course at night, all that you have to saturate that entire sponge of thatch across the whole golf course before any of that water moves into the root zone where the plants can use it. And all that water is lost to evaporation the next day. So when we, when we only saturate one third of the thatch on a golf course every night, rather than a hundred percent of the thatch of, on a golf course every night, we're substantially improving our physical management of water. And we're only able to do this because we've built the soil health to a point where it can handle that, that method of, of irrigation. All right. Well, I, I like the golf course analogy, but how, how do you build that soil health? What is the, what is the process uh, for actually building the soil health? So, so on a, on a, on a golf course, you know, what we do, what we do is we go out and we, we start with a baseline assessment. So we go out and we take, we take samples of, of the soil, uh, soil. Sometimes we'll take plant tissue. We take water samples to figure out what's, where's the imbalance here, right? We do a physical intensive where that's where, the soil surgeon came from was, you know, all the, all the instruments we, we take out in the field and, and measure soil health with, 
we identify what the deficiencies are and design a think of it like going to your doctor and getting prescribed prescribed medicine or in this case probiotics you know for the soil to cure the problems that we're seeing whether it's you know, compaction whether it's black layer i could go into a bunch of technical terms but but we design we design a solution for the problems that we see in the field and then we utilize the existing infrastructure the irrigation system to distribute that that series of products right or bacteria that sounds way above my pay grade but i um, <laughs> I, I i get it so I, I'm I'm curious about the golf course. You've you've mentioned it a couple times now, and how I mean, are, are are we underutilizing golf courses? Should golf courses be more appreciated? I mean, can you can you dive into that a little more? Yeah. So so golf is a golf is kind of a controversial topic, and and I like I like working with golf and being able to put these numbers up because, because it affects, it's in your own backyard. You know, I can, I mean, from where I'm sitting right now, I can see, I can see there's a golf course in the distance. Um, golf makes up golf courses, make up 90% of urban green space. So, so if you think, you know, our, our, our city parks and green spaces, the more research that comes out about it, the more, the more good green spaces for, for communities, for mental health, for, you know, for, for us and golf courses are a substantial, substantial percentage of that. So I think the way, the way we look, the way we look at golf courses, there's been more of a move to make golf courses more inclusive. So if you're not a golfer, you can go out and play foot golf or there's even fling golf, which is kind of like lacrosse now, but how can we make use of these how can we make these assets of green space more available to the communities that that live around them and i think there's a lot of good that that is coming from it during covid we we saw a golf boom right a lot of people picked up golf that really weren't weren't interested in it before but but not not everybody not everybody who not everybody has to be a golfer to enjoy to enjoy you know green space the the park aspect like saint saint andrews like one of the first golf courses like they close they close the course to golf on sundays and it's just a public park right people in the community go out and picnic and kids ride bikes and and play play ball and uh, they enjoy enjoy the golf course like it's like it's a park so i think as we as we see more pressure for affordable housing in urban areas. And we see this cities see this, this asset class of golf courses that make up so much of our green space. Uh, it's important to educate, educate the community and involve the community and in, in learning how to live with and take advantage of the benefits that, that golf courses provide, not just for their mental health, but you know, for native pollinators and plants and biodiversity, a, a golf course is, is really an oasis, particularly in, in the middle of a, of a, of a large city. Yeah. It, uh, it almost sounds like a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, uh, on revisionist history. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and definitely. And, and, and he's kind of on the other side of, of this argument where, where the, the golf courses are, are for, for the, for the wealthy and for the privileged and elitist. And, and it's, 
it's really golf is built in the municipal on the municipal side. Like golf isn't built. People don't learn how to play golf in private country clubs. Like people learn how to play golf on, on the public golf courses that you can go get a bucket of balls for six, eight, $10 and a lesson for 50. Right. Um, so, so I think to, to acknowledge that the biggest, the biggest thing that I would be afraid of, of, you know, changing golf golf courses into affordable housing, not that affordable housing isn't a problem, but when you remove, when you start chipping away at our largest class of urban green space, you know, what, what happens when there's no more golf courses in cities, what happens to the, to the pollinators, what happens to, you know, the birds, what happens to the biodiversity that exists on a golf course when those start to go away. Yeah. And that's all tight. That's all tied into water, right? It's all, all, it's all tied into water. Uh, so let's bring it back to water. Uh, in terms of the, the, uh, from an ag perspective and things like that, what role does ag play in, uh, in, in slowing down or perhaps even reversing climate change. And I, I say that's bringing it back to water because as many guests have said before, we all experience climate change through the lens of water. So let me, let me ask that question and I'll just sit back and be interested in hearing your response. Absolutely. So agriculture, we'll start with how big of a water user is agriculture. So in the state of California, agriculture uses 80% of our water. That's huge. That's if we want to go about saving, saving water, agriculture is, is the way to do it. Right. It's, it's like the classic 80, 20 rule or 20% of your effort creates 80% of the results. Well, if we put our, if we put our effort into, if we put our effort into saving water on the agricultural side and we chip away at this huge astro- you know, it's astronomical number when we're looking at water use and we we approach agriculture and provide solutions for agriculture and really innovate in that space to conserve water use less do more with less um, then we then we're actually able to to make a difference um, when when we're going after you know as opposed to going after categories that are you know 10 percent five percent 80 percent there's a lot of meat on the bone with agriculture now to get into to get into how I think agriculture is a solution for for climate changes this is a great example of like look at look at the water use that agriculture that agriculture has look at the look at the potential that agriculture has to cycle carbon right one of the one of the biggest we need to take carbon from our atmosphere and put it back into the soil and what agriculture and crop production is is making organic matter produce you know things that we we eat or we feed animals out of out of out of the ground we're cycling carbon agriculture is is <laughs> we're, we're looking at, at all these different technologies but fundamentally agriculture is producing carbon-based materials by cycling them through the through the air through the soil um to and that's what make up our yields right is it's all it's all carbon based all biomass so if we can if we can focus on how can we how can we approach agriculture use less water produce more biomass per acre while managing our soils 
responsibly, <laughs> taking, taking care to holistically manage our soils using physical, chemical, and biological practices that, that support increased crop yields with less inputs. I mean, that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds like a great leave behind message, but I'll, I'll let you, uh, uh, I'll give you the opportunity to produce a leave behind message. If you'd like, go ahead. If you've got a leave behind, let's hear it. Yeah. The leave behind that, that I'd like, I'd like to leave today is, is to think of, is to think of our water use and to think of the way we manage our soils as, as a, as a think of soil as a tool to use to combat climate change and to improve your health and to reduce the use of water, to be able to reallocate water and get ourselves out of this drought. The soil is, is central to, to our largest water users on the planet. And if we can use the soil as a tool using practices that, that have been proven and developed that go out and it's not just good for the environment. It's also good for the farmer's wallet. It's a good for their business model. If they can find solutions that improve soil health and improve their plant yield and reduce their, reduce their inputs and save water. I mean, it's a win, win, win. Yeah. Terrific. Well, Parker, thank you so much. You've been uh, terrific. I have learned so much, including something about mechanical engineering that I didn't know before. Um, but in any event, for those who want to find out more about you, more about your work, where can they go to get that information? Yeah. So to find, to find out more about us, you can follow us on, on Twitter at PRM soil health, Instagram at PRM soil health. I am my personal accounts, the soil surgeon on, on Twitter and Instagram. And our website is PRM that's Papa Romeo, Mike soil.com. Awesome. Well, Parker, thanks again. Great speaking with you. I really appreciate it. And uh, onwards and upwards. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, David. It was great talking with you. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Parker nailed it. Thanks for coming on, Parker. Really appreciated it. And I thought your perspectives on soil health and water were very important, very timely. And I think you imparted some really valuable insights uh, during our conversation. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast, click the first link that comes up. Again, the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield gives us a home on the web. So that's why you're going to be taken to a Bluefield Research landing page for the podcast. If you still use Twitter, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values. And you can tweet at me using my handle, at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at the landing page on the Bluefield site I mentioned earlier as well. Well, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you again to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2023 season include Black & Veatch, Trinex, Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, and the American Waterworks Association. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. 
In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.